Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins and I'm still on Zoom despite all the lockdown loosenings with Mr. Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Mr. Jasper Murison Bowie. Hello, Barney. In this episode, we'll be talking about A&R men, maybe A&R women, and about Julian Cope and Was Not Was and plenty more besides with the legendary David Bates. Welcome, David. Hello, Barney, and hello, boys. (laughs) (laughs) This is boys stuff. (laughs) (laughs) All right, lads. Boys to men. Back in the 80s, David was one of the most powerful A&R men in the UK. He signed the Teardrop Explodes. He signed Tears for Fears, Texas, Wet, 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 Def Leppard, you name it, and rebooted the careers of legends like Scott Walker and Robert Plant. But David, how did you become the passionate music fan I know you are in the first place? My father used to play all sorts of music uh, when I was growing up and used to make me sit and listen. And uh, one thing that I really had a, an absolute hatred for was Tchaikovsky and Sibelius. And he used to play uh, blues music, which I quite liked the stories because that was far better than 1812 Overture. And so that that got me interested. And then he had, believe it or not, and this is back in the sort of late 50s, early 60s, he had what was an early tape recorder. And he would allow me to have one reel. And I used to record the BBC Home Service charts on a Sunday. Uh, And then I could build my own collection up of music. Um, Later on, he gave me my first album, which was Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee Sing the Blues, which I still have. And it's just out of reach, but it's over there. Oh, lovely. <laughs> nice. And that was the sort of start of the fascination of records. The radio was disappointing, I thought, until about 1962. And then it was a Brian Matthews episode one Saturday. And I heard this sound, which was unlike anything else I'd ever heard. It was completely unique and if you think we had Adam Faith and Cliff Richard and Alma Cogan and a whole load of other uh, would-be American style singers and suddenly this sound came on and it was just unusual I went off with my pocket money to the record store in Feltham and bought my first Beatles single and that was it that started me off. And then the charts became more interesting on a Sunday. And it just built up from there. Eventually, I just built up quite a large singles and albums collection. And by pure chance, and it's a very long story, but by pure chance, I got into becoming a DJ in 1969, 1970, when I was uh, 17, 18 years old. And that was it. That was the start of it. And I just I've always been a fanatic about trying to spot hits and and just being into records. And eventually I was spotted by, of all people, Seymour Stein of Sire Records. Mm-hmm. He came into I was at that point employed by Richard Branson and Nick Powell in their new venture, Virgin Records Mega Store. And I was brought in to become the singles buyer for all of their stores because they needed hits to drive in young people and old grannies and granddads and kids bringing in their little record tokens so they could go from being a hippie shop to being a normal record store uh, based on the American model. 
And to do that, they needed singles and hit singles, so they would bring in a different kind of custom. So I was the person that was uh, assigned to doing that. And I was working out a marble arch, and one day this, well, I thought was an old guy came in. By the way, Seymour was about 35. (laughs) (laughs) But I was looking at him thinking he was quite odd, and he was asking me why was I playing these records. And I said, oh, it's, um, it's a new music. It's from America. It's called punk music. And he said, oh, really? Well, what's, what's with punk music? And, of course, I have no idea who he is, but just this elderly American gentleman asking me about punk. And I'm explaining everything there is to know about punk. And he went, <laughs> oh, very good. Little did I know that he crossed the road to see a guy called Nigel Grange, who worked over in Phonogram, and said, there's a kid over the road. You're going to employ him tomorrow because this kid wow. knows what's happening. That's brilliant. Wow. That's a brilliant that's, story. That's a really good story. Yeah. <laughs> and Nigel, by the way, who was uh, at that point the head of A&R, previously had been in charge of dealing with DJ. So I'd known Nigel for three years. Nigel had never spotted me in those three years. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly I was being foisted on him by Seymour, who went, this kid's going to go places. Uh, and that's, that's how it started. So I became a scout for, uh, for Phonogram. Great. That's brilliant. Given this is Rock's Back Pages, it would be interesting to know whether you read the music press as a teenager. Oh, totally. Absolutely. Enemy and Melody. Melody and Melody being, obviously, the the bigger paper in those early days, and the enemy slowly becoming the uh, on the outer rails, and then sounds. But, in fact, I had kept all my copies from 1971 through to 1985 and they stored them up in my mother's attic but the ceiling was about to give way so I had to remove them and nobody wanted them and I had nowhere else to store them so they ended up in a skip which is very sad but yes I was an avid reader of all the papers in fact I used to enter all the competitions and won one for the Led Zeppelin 3 album did you? Yeah. <laughs> Someone wins those. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> actually, yeah. I you know. actually got it. Maybe you've got that somewhere. We will be talking, I hope, about Messrs. Page and Plant later. But just, I mean, it, this is the first of the three pieces we're featuring on the home page this week that are relevant to you mentions Chris Briggs, who was like a fellow a and yes. titan of yours in that era. And, of course, Chris wrote for Zigzag. I mean, did you? would you have read Chris in Zigzag? I actually didn't know that until you've just told me. (laughs) I've done a lot of things with Chris, most of them illegal, but I didn't know about that one. (laughs) Well, we're here to inform, David, so I'm glad to impart that information to you. I mean, at that sort of early stage, I mean, when you you were coming into the industry, I mean, what did you know about the business of artists and repertoire? And, And who were your role models, if any? Nothing. I didn't even know what A&R stood for. I just knew I'd got this job as the A&R scout. And then on the Monday, I asked, out of interest, do I have to wear a suit and do what the hell is A&R? So uh, (laughs) no idea. The only person that I knew that was an A&R was George Martin. And of course, he was A&R and a producer, which was quite normal in those days. There were quite a few people that were A&R producers. Johnny Franz was one that was working at Phonogram at the time. Johnny used to do Scott Walker, the Walker Brothers, Dusty Springfield, and a whole host of other people. And Chris Blackwell, I knew of as a producer and as an A&R man. So there were no real role models. I gathered information about who were A&R men. And it became obvious to me that 
John Hammond was my hero. And, and I did eventually end up having uh, a number of correspondence letters with John be- shortly before he died. Sadly, I didn't get to meet him in person and I was invited to his funeral but just couldn't make it um and it was just sad because he was for me an amazing character who came from quite a wealthy family but and again we have to understand at the time the significance of this but he enjoyed black music which was regarded as something you didn't do if you're from a rich white family but he would go and hang out in all the clubs in Harlem and eventually worked for a record company, and he signed Billie Holiday, Bessie Smith, and a whole host of other amazing singers, including Aretha Franklin. And so his career built up. And then in 1961, 62, he discovered this kid called Bob Dylan. And from there on, he just became a bit of an A&R legend. And, and one of the final things that he signed was uh, Bruce Springsteen. So his career had gone from blues to jazz to rock to folk to everything, and he just just loved music for music. Didn't care if you were green, black, brown, white, pink. Didn't care. Just loved music. He was just an amazing character. Sure, sure. In this piece that, that mentions Chris Briggs, you are quoted, this is Chaz Dewali in Sounds in January 78, and I, I will quote what you said. It can be very difficult to pin down an A&R man. You have to be persistent, make a nuisance of yourself, ring three or four times a week till he agrees to see you. Then you must go in and be totally professional about things. Nobody's going to be interested in you if you keep making excuses for your tape and your song and your lyrics, or you open up your briefcase and it's got sandwiches in it. Yeah. <laughs> you would be surprised how many times that happened. <laughs> <laughs> I am absolutely serious. These guys come in with these expensive leather briefcases and you expect it to be full of papers and they opened up. You can literally see there was a Marks and Spencer sandwich in there and, and a cassette. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that, it reminds me of the story that Lou Adler once told me about Kim Fowley coming in with a fairly impressive looking briefcase. And Lou asked him to to open it up and, and there wasn't even a sandwich in it. There was nothing yeah. in it at all. Yeah, yeah. It was purely for show. <laughs> so you became you know eventually you became head of A&R at Phonogram and I think you were head of A&R for 12 years which is quite an innings I mean how do you remember the the UK music industry in those years well it was a very vibrant time because the interest in music worldwide was gathering pace I mean it always you know there's always been a popular music scene but suddenly it was hitting all the far corners of the world. And then with the start of CDs, that really exploded. The amount of sales and the amount of interest in music. Then other things came in like MTV. So it was – people today are amazed by the numbers of, of, uh, of CDs and albums and cassettes sold at that point. Musically, it was also very, very diverse and people had gone from away from being just single driven i mean yes there were you had to have hits but it wasn't just hits there was still a possibility of having artists who were just great songwriters or great performers so it was it was a fantastic time yes probably the the biggest act 
of the biggest of the early acts that you signed was probably Def Leppard, you know, who obviously yeah. went on to be to become absolutely massive. We'll be talking about Julian Cope a little later, so so we won't talk about Teardrop Explodes, but Aside from Def Leppard, we have a Huey Lewis and the News fan in our in our midst. Oh my god, this again! <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't go as far as that. They amuse me, but I did I did notice in your in the discography that you sent over that you you signed their very first single when they were not called the News, they were called something else. I can't remember yeah. what they were called, but uh, like Exo Disco or something. Yeah. So the story was Jake and Nick Lowe and Dave Robinson were fans of a band called Clover. Yeah, yeah. And they persuaded Nigel to sign Clover and bring Clover over. Julie Dunn, uh, and they became a bit of a hit scene on, on the, uh, you know, the late pub rock scene and pre-punk scene. It was all crossover at that point. This was 1976. And Nigel left to go and start up his label, and that left Clover without anyone looking after them. I was only a junior A&R scout, so it got nothing to do with me. And eventually, they actually broke up. It left Huey and half of the band in England with no money, no way of getting home, and they were stuck. And Huey, who I'd known for a year or so and was very good friends with, in fact, he used to come round to my flat all the time so we could play music he became a big fan of uh, i introduced him to little feet and he was became a huge fan of little feet and he came to see me and said look is there any way that you could sign us so that we could get the money for the airfare home (laughs) (laughs) wow so i arranged for this single to be recorded which featured some members of thin lizzy (laughs) and the other members of clover it was a disco record which we did put out and nobody was interested in. And then off Huey and the boys went. And then literally, as they got back to San Francisco, they formed the news. And the rest, the as they say. That's the I've ever heard. Can you sign us so we can fly home? <laughs> I, I bet some of my crate digging mates from the dance scene will have, will have that single and treasure it. As a yeah. Sort of... <laughs> so uh, every time I go to any of these sort of award things, uh, Huey Lewis would be across the room. And, of course, at that point he was in the 80s, he was a huge star. And he would always come zooming across to give me a massive hug. That's great. I'm the guy that got him home. Yeah, (laughs) you saved him. You saved him. That is absolutely fantastic. also came to the rescue of the wonderful was not was david and we would like to play you a short clip from last week's new audio interview that we put on so it's andy gill's 1990 interview with don and david was take it away why did you join phonogram well truth is David Bates was the head of A&R over there. He was like the only guy on earth who would sign us at this point. We, we were down pretty low when we had the uh, the stigma of being suspended by Geffen. That was like, you know, we were the scourge of the, uh, the business. We had delivered our third album to Geffen, and they said, no, we won't. 
put this out, and no, you can't have any more money to finish it. So basically, until someone came along to pick up the debt and make a deal that would uh, you know, maintain Geffen's fiduciary interest in our career, and it took a crazy man like Bates you know, to take a risk on a scruffy, no-image R&B band and uh, his role was Henry Higgins to our Eliza Doolittle, literally. <laughs> okay, so Henry Love Higgins. That. Henry Higgins, over to you. What's your version of the Was Not Was okay, story? Well, I was always a fan of the band and Geffen ended up doing a deal with uh, CBS Sony for the second album and they put out a single and I thought that was the wrong single choice they put out a second single and it was still the wrong choice so I called up the head of A&R Muff Winwood over at, at Sony and just said what the hell are you playing at why you keep releasing the wrong singles? What's the matter with you? This was the first single. This was the second single. This should be the third single. Get yourself sorted. This band's amazing. Anyway, he paid no attention. <laughs> the story somehow got back to Don and David. It also got back to Geffen. And around this time, I was very successful and a number of the American record companies were interested in, in me going to work for them in America. And David Geffen was one of the people that had been very, very keen on getting me. And he'd tried all sorts of tricks to get me to go and work for him. So I did have a great relationship with David, although he was pissed off with me not joining him. And then out of the blue, he phoned me up and said, and I won't even do the accent, but he, he phoned up and just said, I hear you're a fan of this band i am really cheesed off with them what do you propose and we came to an arrangement which believe it or not didn't cost a lot in fact he was just glad to see the back of them i agreed to pick up the album that they'd done which was effectively what up dog and we came to as i say came to some sort of small arrangement then i met with don and david and said okay they knew i was a big fan i said but there's just one thing i've got to tell you i think the album's rubbish <laughs> which was not what they were expecting and they wanted you to know what was wrong and i said we well, haven't got a hit on it there's no hits on this record which is why you had a problem but we're going to have hits so let's go through all the songs that you have i bet you you've got a hit somewhere but you just don't even know you're sat on it huh. and uh, we went through all of their demos and i found two likely suspects that they had not recorded for the album and then the next shot came, which was, I want to bring in Paul O'Duffy to produce it, because I think Paul's a very good R&B producer. I know he's English, but I think he's, a, he's got great pop and R&B sensibilities. So I brought them in. Don was obviously shocked and upset by it, but I said, look, trust me on this. I think we can end up with a, with a pop hit single. I don't think you have, at this point, the pop sensibilities, which he accepted. And we did two tracks. One was uh, Spy in the House of Love and the other one was Walk the Dinosaur. Fantastic. Those were the two hits we needed. And then we had an album that was ready to go out into the marketplace. Boom, boom, 
What do you think, generally speaking, is the relationship between hit singles and albums for you? It's uh, there are very few bands that have got away with not releasing singles, and we know who they are. Massive as though they are, have been, they are the exceptions to the rule. It is unfortunate that you have to have hits without mm. them you're just not going to sell any albums that became more and more so relevant in the 70s and 80s and 90s without the hits you're not going to sell i mean today albums are not even of any interest but in that period where people were trying to sell albums it was hit driven mm-hmm. now it's interesting i mean you know i was in a band in the 80s and our record company wouldn't put out our album for a year until they they heard what they thought would be a hit, and it wasn't yeah. anyway. I mean, but but it was exactly that process. Yeah, no, it's, it's 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 quite tough being in a band having having to kind of like conform to that process. Yeah, it's also very tough having to turn up and say to somebody, "I know you think this baby of yours is perfect, yeah. but your baby is actually not perfect. We need to we need to sort of surgically." <laughs> do things that brings us neatly into the second of the pieces that are going to feature on the homepage which is this piece from Q that Phil Sutcliffe wrote about the sort of epic gestation of Tears for Fears' follow-up to songs from the big chair and I'll just quote something again when you are quoted several times in this piece which I remember reading at the time Meanwhile, unusually, Dave Bates had no opinion at all. He had hardly (laughs) heard from Tears for Fears since the tour. I'd been a mother hen to them since 1981 when they were 19, but we'd had our ups and downs and finished that tour on a bunch of downs. So I assumed they were going to go go their own way, A&R themselves from then on. I was hurt but not surprised. So this this is Phil's account of, I think, of sort of the four-year process of insane perfectionism and studio madness that eventually produced like sowing the seeds of love etc i mean it's almost like it's it's a sort of it's one of those great 80s tales isn't it of of kind of just spending too it's like steely dan you know spending three weeks trying to get a kind of hi-hat sound Mark, I think you, you yeah, told yeah, me. Yeah, no, you were... I mean, um, we mixed our entire album in a week at Air, the old Air Studios in the time it took them to not get a snare drum sound for that second <laughs> album. I mean, it was unbelievable. They were in the massive Air One, the ma- major studio there. And you just heard this gaff, gaff, gaff all day and all night as they were just trying to get the snare drum sound. David, how do you remember that experience? And, and in a sense that in the 80s is very associated with almost like overproduction, overthinking things. I mean, from this distance and all this time later, how do you look back on a process like that Tears for Fears album? What a waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> what a waste of money. Looking back, yes, it's completely indulgent. Looking back, it's ridiculous. From that the result of doing that, I ended up looking at records again and just going, it doesn't really matter. It really doesn't matter. If you analyse all the great records, you know, the most successful albums, they're flawed, completely flawed, and that's fine. I absolutely loathe that period of time, 
and it was really hard, really tough. I did go up to the studio pretty much. If it wasn't once a week, then it would be once every two weeks, and that went on for four years. God. Jeez. Yeah. 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 And you've got to go in with a, a smiling face because the last thing you want to do is to be the one that turns up and just goes, what the f- are you doing? Because you've got to remember, they'd made so much money on the back of songs from the big chair and then all the uh, the first album that they were paying for it themselves. Yes. Right. So it's really their choice. If they want to spend their money that way, then that's entirely up to them. There's nothing I can do about them spending their money. And it was, uh, it was, I mean, it was just torturous. Yeah. No, not enjoyable. No. Uh, no. And it's not my favourite record either. No, no. Um, we haven't really got time to talk about Scott Walker. I wish we did, but I would like to just ask you about Robert Plant and Jimmy Page and how you came to be part of that post-Led Zeppelin story. One day I got a phone call from the security guard downstairs at the at the company and said, there's a gentleman down here called Robert Plant who wants to see you. And I thought, <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is like going to be one of those guys with a briefcase with nothing in it except a demo tape bluffing his way through but let's see and the lift doors opened and there came barging through the well-known figure of robert <laughs> locks blazing behind him with a huge grin on his face and just came up and went good to meet you let's go talk and that was it <laughs> Just wandered straight into my office. It was like, okay, what? And you're sort of going, this is ridiculous. This is one of my all-time heroes, one of the most famous rock people ever, and he's just walked in. He sat down and he said, right, I hear you're a bit of a pain in the backside. I hear you're difficult to deal with. I hear you're into music. I hear you're into blues music. Right, what you got? Yeah. It's like, what the hell? I mean, it literally <laughs> is like a hurricane hitting you. And we got chatting away. Uh, and the next thing is he said, right, I'm looking for a new place to uh, record. I've had enough of the people over at uh, Warner Brothers and Atlantic. I think you and I should work together. And that was it. So I, <laughs> I suddenly had Robert Plant on my hands. That's just brilliant. And we built up a very good relationship. Bill Kerbishley, who was his manager, had been approached by Jimmy to try and reconnect with Robert. And there was a huge gap between them. Um, There's a lot of personal problems and a lot of history, and Robert was not interested and had not been interested for a very long time. And so Bill and I had to persuade Robert that, why not just meet? Why not just, you know, meet, sit down and just see if there's anything there? And they did. It was in an airport and they met very briefly. They had a quick chat. 
they agreed that they would meet again in London. And there was then possibly for them sitting in a room. So I became part of that process, that healing process, that meeting process. And obviously, I had Robert signed. Jimmy was not signed to anybody. So it was on me to do a deal to sign the two of them. So I signed the pair of them, which, of course, for me was a teenage dream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you ended up in Morocco with them, of course. Yes. And the No Quarter Hour, that live record that came out, which I mean, I imagine you have kind of good memories of at least some of that process. Oh, well, I'll, I'll just give you a little story, which you guys will appreciate and you'll probably cut out, but I'll give you this little <laughs> bit. <laughs> so we had to go into the uh, Atlas Mountains to record the Ganawa meeting up with another set of singers. And by the way, there is massive tribal differences to this day. So it was quite prickly because the, the two sets of musicians were meeting and they absolutely traditionally hate each other. Mm. But as far as Robert and Jimmy are concerned, this is great. It's going to be wonderful. And we were in this palace, which sounds grand, and until you see that most of it was ruined, which was so sad, to record the meeting of, of, of this. And while they were setting up the equipment and the cameras, it's known that Robert is a big fan of, and Jimmy obviously was a fan of Donovan, and they were playing Hey Jip, Dig the Slowness while they were waiting for this equipment to be set up. And then a member of the Ganao came up to the interpreter and went, you know they're playing that wrong. <laughs> and he comes back and so the children looked at him and said, how do you mean you're playing it wrong? The Ganao sat down and started playing something that sounded very close to Hey Jip, Dig the Slowness. And at that point, the lights went on and went, holy shit. This is a traditional Ganawa song that's 300 years old. It's traveled to America as part of the slave trade. It's gone to the South. The South have played it. It's in a blues song. Donovan from Scotland's turned up. He's picked up on it, rewritten it, come back and put it out as a record. And here we are today faced by the guys that wrote it wow, wow. <laughs> that's that, fantastic. Yeah, that is brilliant that's, that's a hell of a full in 100%. circle yeah <laughs> i love it that's, that's great. so they circle. sat down and mm. they played the mixed version the ganawa and robert and jimmy which is it's on record somewhere that's fantastic that fantastic i mean i can only assume that working over the years with robert was less torturous than the tears for fears process that you described so well earlier yeah, I, it, you know, Robert is like, right, that's it, let's go. I've done my yeah. bit. And it's like, no, we need to do a couple of more takes. No, 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 no. I only ever do it in one or two. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, that's better, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I, I, I like the way he's sustained a career doing different things for all of these years, right up to like his big hit with Alison Krauss a few years back and things like that. His refusal to entertain proper Led Zeppelin reunions. I mean, it's partly because he can't hit those high notes anymore. And when when, when they did that O2 show, was a, he'd only go so far up, and then he'd kind of take the note down. And, and but also just that it's the past, uh, and I like his resistance to to revisiting the past in that way. When we sat down on that first time, or the first couple of meetings that we had, and we were just talking. I was less than complimentary about some of the albums he had made mm -hmm. as a solo artist, which 
you can imagine someone saying, well, I don't think your record's very good. <laughs> it's a shock to the system, especially with someone that's, you know, as big as Robert. And uh, But on the other hand, he suddenly realised, yeah, I am treading old water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And without going to a huge long story, but he, I actually requoted him back, which was, we're going down a road, we're going to come to a crossroads. And dear boy, we can go left, we can go right, or we can go straight on, but the choice is ours. I said, it's time we went back to that crossroads, isn't it? And why don't we go look at it again and let's see which way we want to go. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's lovely. And that's why when we got the Robert and Jimmy thing together, we brought in the Ganawa, we brought in the Egyptians, we brought in all sorts, and we brought in the hurdy-gurdy. We started bringing all different things because Robert was, took it upon himself. This is my moment to break free. I don't have to do thump, thump, thump. I can actually go and do anything I want. Sure. And it just built from that moment onwards. And if you look at from that moment, he was then doing all sorts of different things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Lovely. David, the third piece we're featuring in, in on the homepage is Chris Salovich's face cover story on Julian Cope from November 1981. And again, you get a name check. So Julian says, Dave Bates, the A&R man who signed us, i.e. Teardrop Explodes, told Bill Drummond, who was then managing them, if Julian gets his shit together, he'll be a real pillar. And Bill just laughed hysterically. Well, in a way, Julian has become a a bit of a pillar, hasn't he? And we thought we would add a Julian Cope audio interview this week so we could talk a bit about Cope. So, Mark, do you want to just tell us about the Cope audio? Yeah, it's actually very amusing. He's basically launching his album Peggy Suicide to the French rock press, which in itself is a fairly baffling thing to do. This has been around April 91. It's quite short, but... I mean, you know, as we all know, he's he's got the gift of the gab. And he, he talks about not wanting to be seen as caring, not wanting to be Sting or Billy Bragg, which I thought was fairly marvellous. He kind of goes into this stuff about Peggy's suicide, being Mother Earth, freaking out. Let's listen to this clip. It's, a, it's about being a cult artist. I've always dealt in metaphor. And unfortunately, you can deal in metaphor for just so long that in the end people can misunderstand. People just think, he's the guy who wears a turtle shell on his back. He's the guy who calls himself you know, Saint-Julien and all this kind of stuff. And it's just become a cult. And a cult is a terrible thing to be. Because a cult just means I don't sell records. <laughs> I love that kind of brutal assessment of what it is to be a cult. He talks about being an ambassador of looseness, trying to turn people on that it's cool to hang upside down or take drugs. I mean, you know, he's just he, he just comes out with all this kind of exposed stuff. You can hear all the journalists kind of giggling all around him. Let's listen to another clip. This is uh, let's return to the, the tears for fears issue. Jasper, do you want to play this next clip?
I'm on Island Records. It's cheap. They think you've got to spend lots of money, you know? You don't have to be Tears for Fears. It's like Tears for Fears don't consider it real art unless it costs a million pounds. Which is bullshit. <laughs> 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 anyway, it's, 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 it's short, it's very engaging. We'll play another clip at the end of the podcast on Peggy's suicide. Great. But uh, no, I mean, it's, it's about 12, 13 minutes long, the whole thing, but it's very well worth listening. It's fabulous. To. He's so funny and so, he's so bright, isn't he? David, tell us how you first connected with Julian and the teardrop explodes. I'd heard. I was going to a gig and I heard John Peel and this song came on and A, I love the title and I just loved the sound. I just thought, oh, this is amazing. It was Bouncing Babies yeah. and it was on Zoo Records and I absolutely adored them and I thought, okay, Zoo, small little label, mm, I sense I could maybe go in there. So off I went to see the teardrops. The shark circles the zoo. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, the shark does circle the zoo. <laughs> I ended up going to see them three or four times. Once they were supporting Joy Division or Joy Division was supporting them, I saw them with Echo. Yeah, Joy Division, Teardrops and Echo and the Bunnyman was on one bill. Wow. And that was at the YMCA on London Road, uh, Tottenham Court Road, rather. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. The Another time I saw them up was up in Middlesbrough, where they were playing as a headliner. And it was on a Friday night, and I don't know if you know about Middlesbrough in the 1970s, but it was a bit of a tribal thing. And uh, on a Friday night, everybody met down at the rock club. So you had skinheads, you had Mohicans, you had you know punks, you had all sorts of various tribes were represented, and uh, usually a big fight broke out. And it's exactly what happened when I saw Def Leppard there a couple of years earlier. So it, it, nothing had changed, it was the same. I saw them at the South Bank Poly, and I just knew I had to sign. I, 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 so I, had a, I met them, and I met with Bill, and we agreed that I would sign the sign the band. Bill and Dave Balfe were business partners, and the last thing I, I saying to them was, I actually believe that Julian Cope will become a pop star, which is the the pillar bit you're talking about. And they both fell around laughing. They couldn't believe that the idea of Julian Cope becoming a pop star. And the next thing is that Balfe leans across to me and said, it's your responsibility. You've signed this group. You best not fail. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so that was, uh, was an issue. Because of the music that I grew up with, the music I was interested in, uh, was also overlap with julian so we became good friends and we used to come around to my flat and listen to because i had a quite a huge collection of records still uh, which had got bigger uh, and he wanted to come around and listen to all the sort of rare records that i had and he just moved in so we became flatmates <laughs> for how long were you flatmates? oh about a year or so yeah, yeah. <laughs> and how was it you know well uh, it, 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 there the was another guy who used to share the flat with us called john and we used to take it in turns. We used to live just off Lisson Grove, around the corner from where Paul Cook and Steve Jones live, funnily enough. And we used to get – there was the famous – there is the famous seashell uh, fish and chip shop yeah, yeah. on Lisson Grove. And we would take it in turns to go around and get the fish and chips. But we decided to give up with Julian because every time he went around there, he'd be gone for an hour because people would want him to sign autographs and stuff. <laughs> he'd come back with freezing cold fish and chips. It was useless. So he'd get <laughs> off the fish and chip duty. 
And he is he is sort of carved out such a fascinating niche for himself as a sort of polymathic presence in the culture and the books he's written. I mean, he's a brilliant writer on music, as I realised when he wrote, he wrote this amazing piece for NME about kind of psychedelic punk. And then I got in so hot water with him for not giving World Shut Your Mouth a very good review. I think I think he slags me off and in that first book, Head On, which also talks about you. But I, I, I think he's such a he's such a brilliant he's got such a brilliant mind. I mean, what would would you ever have anticipated the career that he that he's had since you since you parted ways with him? Mm, no. And then yes, it's a mixed thing because one of it is I've always thought that having spent so much time with him you know, literally being with him day, every day, that Julian is highly intelligent, is fascinated with all sorts. He could go in any direction he wanted to. He chose to go into music. He chose to go into writing. He became an expert on, you know, the ancient Britons. He's written books on it. He's done talks in Oxford and Cambridge. He's, he's Nothing surprises me with Julian. And then on the other hand, you sit there and go, well, how can you ever go down that road that he's gone down, which is like the non-commercial road, and still be able to carve out a career and still be able to put food on the table, manage to send his two girls off to really good schools and take them through university and look after his gorgeous wife, Dorian. He's truly remarkable character. and, um, And I have to say that I... I'm very fortunate that I remain friends with him today. Oh, good. We do see each other. He used to do mad things. Uh, there was a period of time when he used to get dressed up, and everyone used to assume he looked like some kind of Nazi German sort of character. <laughs> it was a but strange fact, look. Yeah. It, 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 the, the cat was from the American Air Force, so let's eliminate that one. Mm. The uniform, I believe, was Hungarian or something else. But it just sort of people would look at him, and he used to wear those big boots and, and, and the whole thing. And he... He used to turn up at my house with this massive, I know I do mean massive American truck, which he used as his touring equipment van, which looked like a Humvee but wasn't, uh, dressed up like he was, and he would stand out in the middle of the street shouting, Batesy, I'm here! (laughs) (laughs) I wish neighbours would be looking through their curtains and going, what the hell is that? (laughs) Wow, Wow. that's glorious. That's glorious. But here's the bit that most people don't know about Peggy's suicide. Quite often I I have the position of people saying, I hope you don't mind, but, you know, I'd like to come and play you something. And it's with artists that are signed to other record labels. And some of them are very famous and some of them are not so famous. So I am used to people going, I hope you don't mind, but, you know, I'd really like to have a chat with you about what I'm doing. So this being the case, Julian called up one time and said look I I really want to come in and see you I I want to play you some music this is for my next album so I said okay we arranged for one evening he would come round to the office and he brought in a bag of cassettes of all the various songs and we went through them all and I said oh that's very good that's potentially a hit that's good song I like that one not sure about that okay what else have you got let's go oh yeah that's very good went through the whole thing he was very happy with all of this, and he went off. And then he went off to make Peggy Suicide. And not one of the hits that I picked out is on that record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very copian tale. I mean, is that just perversity? Is that just almost sort of willful perversity? 
You'd have to ask him. <laughs> <laughs> As for your answer, I can't swear what you're going to get. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I think with Julian, he did not enjoy his time being a successful pop star. Right. The classic one, I've got a letter from him from some years ago, which he is really sweet about our relationship and about our friendship. And at the very bottom of the letter, he put, the thing is, David, you always saw me and heard me as Jim Morrison. I always saw me and heard me as Iggy Pop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there it is. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Yeah. So if you take that as being Julian's preferred choice, I'd rather be Iggy and go down that road and do what I want rather being constrained by the success of Jim Morrison, and we all know where that ended up, mm. I reject that and I, I take that. We're going to have to move on. I just want to mention that the featured writer on the homepage is none other than John Sinclair, former manager of the MC5, who I know was a big inspiration to Julian. I mean, his book, Guitar Army, that came out in 72, I think was a bit of a Bible for Julian Cope. So we're just featuring three pieces, and one of which is a great, like, after-the-fact account of how the MC5 kicked out the jams from 1977 in the aforementioned Zigzag magazine. But anyway, great pieces. He's, he turned into a great writer. Uh, again, a bit of a sort of polymathic talent, John Sinclair. Lovely, lovely man. I met him once in Detroit. Uh, just a, a great, great guy. I, I met him a couple of times here, actually, and he's sweet. He's, he's actually a really sweet guy. You know, Lovely he's, man. You know, he, he seems very comfortable in his skin. He's quite yeah. old now and so on and so forth. I have an enormous amount of time for him, I must say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do have to talk about Dusty Hill, who died, what, like a week or so ago. And he's the main figure featured in the sort of obituary section on the homepage. A piece you added, I think, very recently, an interview by Paul Elliott with, with, with just Dusty rather than like ZZ Top. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Which is rare. Jasper and I were actually talking last night to Bob Merlis, former head of press at Warner Brothers in Burbank, and he had just come back from Dusty's funeral in Houston and had written a really nice tribute to Dusty Hill mm. that he sent us. And it's got great, just great, like, information in it. And he just, obviously, he just talks about how Dusty met Billy Gibbons and how ZZ Top were formed and so forth, and and then obviously kind of when Eliminator made them absolutely massive. I'm a massive. I think we're all pretty huge ZZ Top fans, but I can't speak absolutely. for you, David. I don't know if you've ever had any dealings yep. with the Top. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you put them up, I'll bat them back. Ready? <laughs> so yes. there was a guy I used to work with at Phonogram called Johnny Staines. Johnny was a bit of um, a rock and roll rebel. He used to own a, a, a second-hand record shop in the East End called Rock On. And Johnny ended up being an A&R man, and therefore he came in just above me, and he was brought in by, again, by Nigel. Johnny and I became running partners, so we used to go and see all the bands together. And Johnny and I tried to sign The Clash, but we weren't allowed. We tried to sign several other bands that we weren't allowed. And we, he eventually came across this band that he used to drag me to see and there would always be anywhere between seven and 11 people watching them called Dire Straits. 
And we eventually managed to persuade the signing committee at the Phonogram Record label to sign them. And so Johnny got his band. Dire Straits became quite popular. (laughs) And he and I used to share a massive love of ZZ Top. And at this point, they were huge in America. And they were touring with the three Buffalo Bison, oh, yeah. the the Vultures, and several other mad animals. And therefore, they couldn't tour the UK because they insisted on bringing them over. <laughs> yeah, I mean, these are real live animals on stage for any listener. Who... Yeah, these are real live bison and real live <laughs> vultures and real live rattlesnakes and everything else. <laughs> and what? They weren't allowed to bring them in? They I weren't allowed to bring ridiculous. them in. Now, so they were to tour the UK. Yeah. So anyway, we we were saying that it would be amazing to get the band to come over. And uh, the manager who had just been appointed, or the person who had just been appointed as the manager of Dire Straits, was Ed Bicknell. And Ed was working in a, a, an agency uh, and a promotion, a live music promoter. And we persuaded Ed to bring ZZ Top over. And Ed did bring them to the UK, and they played one gig, Hammersmith Odeon. And the gig did not sell out. Oh, my God. Ed lost quite a bit of money, and that is from 1978, 79, something like that, 78. And to this day, Ed Bicknell does not stop reminding me of how much money that I lost on that evening of ZZ Top. (laughs) (laughs) Does he think you owe him that money? That's the implication. I think Ed always believes people owe him money. (laughs) (laughs) I think he believes that still ZZ Top owe him money. Oh, yeah, brilliant. (laughs) That's very funny. Given that Dusty was really a fantastic bass player, I always remember, enemies say, me to Houston to interview them when like give me all your loving and so forth went like top 10 my memories is one of the memories I have and I adored them I'm particularly Billy Gibbons I have to say I was picked up in a, you know there's a big long kind of Lincoln Continental or something and there was a black guy driving and he was playing ZZ Top as he drove me in to interview them and Cheap Sunglasses came on. And for anyone who doesn't know, Cheap Sunglasses has a bass solo on it and one of the great, I mean, there aren't many of them, but it's one of the great bass solos. And I always (laughs) remember, I was sitting in the back like, God, you know, like it was driving Miss Daisy or something. And and the bass solo comes on and, and the guy whose name I think was Fred, he just, I heard him mutter, that dude picked the shit out of the bass. (laughs) (laughs) And he did, you know, he was a terrific character, Dusty Hill. And much, much missed. It was a gas hanging out with those guys. And we went to see them, did we not, Mark, at Hammersmith? Oh, yeah. Not that long ago. It was <laughs> that, on a that, works that, outing, wasn't it? That's right. No, I mean, we, uh, they were good. You know, slightly ruined by the usual terrible sound that people get these days. Mm. Live sound is worse now than it's ever been in my life. You know, I love them. I mean, I particularly love the first four or five albums. I mean, they slightly lost me around the, the Eliminator period, actually. Yeah. But- yeah, but, although I got to get 
players that incredible Rick Rubin it's fantastic that's amazing that, when we saw them that had like recently come out hadn't it? and I still remember them playing I got to get paid at Hammersmith and it was awesome I mean that track yeah. is as good as anything they ever did back then yes. I think you know yeah I, I I'm with you I, I think there's two or three things along the way that that they did, but it's two or three tracks. The albums weren't very good. Mm. When they came out with Gots to Get Paid, which is not even their song as such, it's absolutely, you go, this is what they should have been doing. Yes. 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 That's a great, great record. Which is Rick Rubin's great talent. Yes, he's, it is. He, he's done this over and over again. Like the records he made with Johnny Cash, those are the records Johnny Cash should have been making as well. Yeah, exactly. You know? yeah. he, and actually, I really like that album he did with Black Sabbath a couple of two or three years back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm not even much of a Sabbath fan, but you know, he's great. Anyway. Yeah, lovely. Well, look, Dave, thank you so much for talking to us about your, your memories and your career. Please, if you would stick around, if you don't have to shoot off, because Mark's going to talk us through some of his highlights from the last two weeks, pieces have gone into the library. Okay, I'm not shooting off. Uh, but before you do that, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, I just want to know, why haven't I got my all-time 100 from you? You got one from me, didn't you? I know I got one from you. I emailed oh. him and he hasn't him. even replied. Him hasn't replied. <laughs> oh, oh. I missed out on this one. Okay, 1977, <laughs> Richard... He says changing subject in hurry. Richard Williams, Melody one. Maker. I really like this. It's basically his memories of going to a record shop in Nottingham and falling in love with the likes of Jimmy Smith and the B3 combos. And he says, record shops were pretty unsophisticated in those days. Imports were virtually unknown, found only on trips down to Transat Imports on Lyle Street or to the forbiddingly cool atmosphere of Dobell's. But there, on Union Street, was after-school Nirvana, a lunchtime rendezvous, a tiny haven of hip. The window told the story in those sun-bleached sleeves, Jimmy McGriff on the Sue label, the Charlie Parker story on Eros, Preaching the Blues with Johnny Hooker, Jimmy Reed and the Memphis Slim, an early Impressions album. I love it. I, I, he absolutely, I mean, at least three of us here are of the generation who went to obscure record shops. He really captures that, that the way in which we discover things in, in these dusty dusty, yellowing places. Earthwind and Fire's Maurice White to Barry Kane, Record Mirror 79. And uh, I love Maurice White because he talks fantastic kind of drivel in interviews, but it's always kind of quite good. He says, they just released the record I Am. He says, you go into the record store and ask for I Am, a reaffirmation of you just by saying those two words. And there's only one thing I always depend on. Every time I release an album, Rolling Stone magazine slams it, and it's always successful. Jerry Lee Lewis to uh, Jim Sullivan, Enemy, 1985. Jerry Lee Lewis, again, his interviews are always fantastic. There's always this extraordinary thing of, you know, he's always like having a discussion with God to the interviewer. He says, I would change. I'd change my way if I thought I was a bad seed. I believe everyone has got to die and face God someday. And I believe that I'll go to heaven when I die. That's from last week. This week, we've got a piece on the Jim Queskin Jug Band live review, Robert Shelton, New York Times, which I'm really pleased about. It's our first piece on Jim Queskin and the Jug Band, who seeded a whole bunch of different artists, people like Jeff Mulder and so on and so forth, came out of it. It's about the Cambridge, the Harvard, Cambridge, Massachusetts kind of folk scene. A slightly batty interview with Joe South, 
uh, Anne Moses, the enemy, 69. Now, Joe South, we used to think of as this soulful white guy writing all these great sort of country soul songs. But he just talks the most amazing batshit in this interview. He says, I've read 600 books on the power of positive thinking, mental power, the occult, and psychic phenomena. Not what you'd expect Joe South to be saying at all for a second. <laughs> Lastly, again, Barry Kane. This is uh, television's Tom Verlaine, and they came over in 77, which uh, Barney and I both saw them in that tour. People wouldn't lump us with other new wave bands if we came from New Orleans, which is actually a very, very good point. It's funny how people have this impression of me as being a very literate person. I seldom get past the first two pages of a book. You worked with Verlaine, didn't you? You worked with Verlaine, yeah. though. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Good memories? Uh, yeah. Well, he's a bit of an oddball. Yes. <laughs> but very sweet, very lovely. I did what I thought was one of the best albums he's, he, he made and desperately tried to have hit singles with him, which just didn't quite come off. But yeah, in fact, I saw the last tour he did, which was, what, three, four years ago? Mm-hmm. They did television tour. And I went to see him in Bristol. And it was great to sort of catch up with him again. He just hasn't changed. No. No. You know, he lives in the same apartment in New York that he has done since 1975. Really? Yeah. That's unusual. Wow. That's cool. He managed to get one of those apartments that, you know... Rent control. Rent control. Rent control. Now I understand why he's in it. Yeah. <laughs> What's next, Mark? Oh, that's it. That's my lot. I was going to hand oh, over to you guys. Well, I just wanted to mention, because I saw that you'd added a piece about Chucky e. Weiss, and so I thought I'd just save a kind of nod to him till we go through the library pieces. Because anyone who doesn't know, Chucky Weiss died. And Chucky Weiss is the guy who Ricky Lee Jones wrote and sang about in Chucky's In Love. And Chucky was Tom Waits's very best pal. I think they met in Denver in about like 74 or something. And they, they, they kind of ran wild in Los Angeles with Ricky Lee, the sort of unholy trio. So he's an important important part of the kind of Waits and Ricky Lee Jones story, made some records of his own, but they never really kind of got a lot of traction. But I think we've now got like three or four pieces about Chucky Weiss and, you know, just a great guy. Don't you know Chucky is in love? Yeah, yeah. Chucky is in love. No, no, no. Chucky is in love. I wanted to mention... A piece by Colin Irwin from 2008 about Seth Lakeman, mainly because it is about, it uh, refers to the Penley lifeboat disaster and raising funds to build a lifeboat station in Cornwall, where Seth Lakeman is from. And I mention it because of the revolting Nigel Farage's attacks on the RNLI for providing what he called a migrant taxi service. I think it's one of the most disgusting things that's happened in the last five disgusting years. The ongoing like war on compassion and decency for me. Is it a new low? No, I don't I don't know that I don't know whether you know how low these people can go, but it it just it it, it so revolted me and I read this mm. Seth Lakeman piece and I thought Let's just get a dig in at that ghastly man. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. And, and lastly, just a, an obituary that Chris Campion wrote about Miss Mercy, which is a great, a great piece he wrote last year for the LA Times, where Miss Mercy, of Frank Zappa, GTO's fan, died. She had an extraordinary career, and he writes brilliantly about that scene. So that, that's the last thing I wanted to mention. And now I shall pass the baton to Mr. Mirison Bowie. <laughs> Thank you very much. I wanted to mention a couple of things. First of which is Chris Heath. Has anyone seen Christina in Rolling Stone on the 14th of November 2002? And that's about Christina Aguilera. 
and it's a it's a great long like nearly five thousand word interview. He basically hangs out with Christina Aguilera for for a few weeks. It's all about her kind of shift from being you know a Disney girl star to to slightly more X rated. Apparently at the time her nickname was X Tina, and she has that tattooed across her neck. I don't know. It's a funny article, but she says some quite you know decent stuff in it because she's been getting a lot of shit for the you know the way she dresses on an award show or whatever, and she says. I like being different. I've never followed the pack and I'm not going to change now because in some magazine I made the list as, what was it? One of the skunk-haired celebrities, she roars with laughter. Oh, she adds, but I was the funkiest skunk of all. <laughs> I just think he's great. Chris Heath's very good at these sort of interviews. He and Stephen Daly, who are both kind of the UK writers, but who end up writing for Rolling Stone doing these big features, and they're very, very good. I just yeah. love reading their stuff. They also get on to talk about her piercings. She also has a piercing in her bottom lip and one in her left nostril, as well as a piercing between her legs. It just seemed erotic in a place that most people wouldn't have the guts to do it, she says. You hear things like, oh, it will help you reach sexual heights whatever but i just think it's pretty i think it accents things quite well <laughs> and um, then she says that it's festooned with diamonds i don't even know how many because it's going in a special place it's really beautiful and expensive and i like it a lot i've gotten a lot of compliments on it at which point chris heath raises his eyebrows just a little from my gynecologist she screeches oh <laughs> no don't take it that way i mean my gynecologist and my waxer which i just think is very very funny i just i can just imagine chris heath kind of just you know sort of sardonically raising one eyebrow yeah kind absolutely of going, you know it's just a great great interview well worth a read then the other thing i want to mention is a review of arctic monkeys live at the itunes festival dorian linsky in 2013 the Roundhouse in London. He has a quite good take on Turner, frontman of Arctic Monkeys. Turner, a shy sort for a frontman, used to seem unnerved by attention. He's coped by adopting a tongue-in-cheek persona that suggests a comic strip version of a 50s rock star, a Blackpool Buddy Holly, all quiffs and quips, which I think is a you know yeah, actually yeah. pretty astute, astute take on it. So, yeah. I'd, it's the one band that, uh, well, it's one of the bands that I would have loved to have signed. Yeah. It's one of my favourite bands. Funnily enough, one of my one of my ex bands members, singer Jeff, was the manager for the Arctic Monkeys up until they partnered up with Nick in in, in London. And I did get to meet them fairly early on, when I wasn't in a position of signing anybody. And he is exactly that. He's very shy, and I could see he was finding it difficult to deal with yeah. the attention that he was getting. So the idea of him hiding behind this character is brilliant because that is quite a few people do that yeah. you know hide behind the character or oh, tom waits who we did earlier was a classic example of that yeah you just take something you make a bigger persona out of it and you just live that live that persona the difficulty is switching between the two you know yeah <laughs> so i think some people get lost in the persona yeah. in the end yeah, that, yeah. That year, 2013, was when um, I think I'm right saying is when the AM album came yeah, out, it is which exactly I, I think is their best record, and I think is an, an absolutely astonishing record. It, it really, is their most consistent album, yeah. no question. Uh, I, I the songwriting on that is just oh my genius, God, isn't it? Isn't it? And yeah. then just the whole sound of it, it's like they yeah. they really kind of reinvented sort of indie rock in some way on that on that album. I think it really endures. I think the thing that's brilliant about them, and the thing that I enjoy most, is you start out with this you know, fairly punky sound. And then each record after that, we're not making the same record again. We're going to make something different, yeah. which is always the sign of a classic artist, someone yeah. that's not prepared to tread water, but is prepared to gamble and make something slightly different and explore a different avenue. 
So, you know, I think they're wonderful. I mean, Hotel Tranquility is not my favorite album. It's my son's favorite album, <laughs> but not mine. But at the same time, I can accept that he was going to do something new. And yeah. God knows what he'll do if he does anything again. No idea what it's going to be like. Well, look, I think we've come to the end of this episode. Dave, I want to thank you so much on behalf of all of us for joining us today. It's been really, really fascinating talking to you about your career and the extraordinary artists that you've worked with over the years. And I just want to kind of give you a big up for the uh, curated playlists that you are doing on Spotify. As you intimated earlier, Mark owes you a top 100. <laughs> and Jasper I'm, probably I'm not too. Sure, I'm not sure I'm capable of putting together a top 100. <laughs> Everyone says that, Mark. <laughs> Everyone says that. I didn't even get asked. So, uh, oh, you know. Jasper will do it if Mark can't. Yeah. <laughs> so, But they're great. And I assume that's kind of keeping you off the streets and keeping you well occupied. Well, I've been doing this with lockdown. I've always done playlists ever since I was eight, nine years old. So, and obviously DJing is the same thing as programming. I ended up doing XFM as a DJ as well, even though I was still an A&R man. So doing running orders for albums or playlists mm. or whatever. And so a lot of people in the industry know that I used to do this end of year thing called Finest Kind, which was my choice of the best records of the year. It's got nothing to do with hits. It's got nothing to do with sales. It's got nothing to do with anything other than these are the records that I thought were great and you may have missed. Mm. So -hmm. this is my way of saying, you may have missed this. See if you like any of this stuff. I've avoided doing anything with them. Uh, With lockdown coming along and nothing to do, it was the perfect opportunity to start putting them up online. So I've done it on dbfinestkind.com, which is DB finest kind is all one word. And it's all there. It's if you've got a Spotify account, then it's free. If you haven't got one, you'll have to pay for one. But you can get it. I think you can I think you can get a free one and you just get some adverts thrown in your you way. get very annoying interruptions. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But so yeah, that's what I've been doing. I've been putting up slowly all the playlists that I have in my collection. And then I've added guest lists, which well known artists, musicians and writers supplied their all-time 100 barney of course has supplied his mark, <laughs> mark of course has ignored my email <laughs> jasper is going to step in and and help out with uh, <laughs> doing his but that doesn't get mark over the uh hurdle <laughs> it's great oh. can't ignore it anymore all right I'm well, have... I'll, I'll, I'll do my best to address it i have to say the idea fills me Absolute terror. Uh, oh, you could put together a hundred fabulous tracks, Pringle. Yeah, you know uh, maybe, you could. maybe, maybe a hundred fabulous versions of Dark Star from my oh extensive my collection. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, you don't want that. You don't want that. I You're going to be sorry track you of are. Dark Star, yeah. and only one track. <laughs> yeah. Every single person track. that's done this so far has come up with, I can't possibly do it. And I can tell you now, if you can look at the list on on the website, if you look at all the people that have done it. There are only two people out of that list that have not said, is it okay if I do 101 to 200 now? <laughs> exactly. Because once you start, yeah. 
100 is not very many, yeah. Joe Elliott <laughs> is on 300 at this point. <laughs> wow. I did listen to I remember receiving the email about Joe's. I don't know whether it got 300 then, but I did listen to it, and it's great. I mean, he's got great taste. You've always had fabulous taste. So anyone out there, do investigate. They're amazing playlists. And I think we better wrap up, if only to spare Jasper the countless hours he's going to have to spend editing this thing. It's been a treat. It's been lovely to see you, David. Thank you for joining us. Good to see you all. It's been fantastic. And thank you very much, guys. Thanks a lot for Thanks joining us. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah. Mark, if you would just talk us out with the last audio clip. Yeah, it's, it's, it's Julian Cope uh, talking about Peggy's suicide, the meaning of Peggy's suicide. Brilliant. Good stuff. We'll be back in two weeks, hopefully with Dave Stewart. It's just it's Dave month. <laughs> with, uh, with Rock's Back Pages investor and facilitator Dave Stewart God willing God willing so Christ. thanks for joining us today bye bye, bye. Peggy's suicide is an image it's the mother earth this beautiful, fantastic, wonderful Mother Earth. A big, enormous woman. She has enormous breasts and a big belly. And she's standing there with her arm outstretched. And on her index finger, the moon is spinning. And she's got this terrible feeling of sadness because of all the shit that mankind is doing to her. This terrible kind of confusion because mankind are her children who we completely lost this feeling that we ever belong to the Earth. That was Julian Cope in 1991, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest David Bates. Find his playlists at dbfinestkind.com. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.